You're listening to Beyond the Sermon, the podcast of First Methodist Church in Collingswood, New Jersey. Our goal is not only to share our sermons, but to go beyond the sermon in conversation about what we're learning and what God is doing in our lives and in our community. This sermon comes from our 2022 sermon series, Digital Babylon, Developing Resilient Faith in Exile. You can find more information about our church at fumccollingswood.org. Thanks for listening. Well, as we dive into this morning's message, I want to remind you that we're still in our sermon series that we're calling Digital Babylon, Developing Resilient Faith in Exile. In this series, we're looking at what it means to develop resilient disciples in the face of cultural coercion. We're trying to answer the question, how do we remain faithful to Jesus in digital Babylon? If you've missed any of the last few weeks, uh, I encourage you to, to catch them up and, and watch them on YouTube or our website or the podcast. You can listen to the podcast. But just to kind of give us some context for today and to remind you of some of the numbers we're talking about, um, these numbers come from uh, Barna Research. Uh, 22% of young adults who grew up in the church end up choosing to walk away from church. We call those the prodigals. The nomads are the 30% that end up drifting out of church, not necessarily consciously, but they do. They, 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 they end up out of the church. 38% stay in church and embrace the values and practice, or they stay in church without embracing the values and practices of the church. We call them the church goers. 38%. And 10% of those who grow up in the church go on to become resilient disciples. I've mentioned that there are five practices that either mark or have formed resilient disciples. And, and these practices help to answer the five key questions, the five formative questions that we all have to answer at some point in our lives. Questions like we sang just a minute ago, who am I really? Who am I? How should I live my life in the world that I find myself living in? And, and today's question of focus, am I loved? Like really, am I, am I really loved? <clears throat> you see, here's the problem. In digital Babylon, we live in the midst of isolation and mistrust. The world is more connected now than it ever has been before, right? Anyone else experience that? I, I mean, I regularly listen to podcasts from Melbourne, Australia, and London, and New York City, that was unimaginable a hundred years ago that you could just, anytime you want, pull up a sermon from a completely different country, let alone another city, anytime you want, right? You don't even have to wait for a certain time and tune in on the radio or something. You just pull it up when you want it. Or, you know, it's, it's no bigger deal for me today to pick up a phone and call my sister in Kentucky or Meg's parents in Florida than it is for me to pick up the phone and call somebody right here 
in Collingswood. Or I've got something like 1,100 friends on Facebook, even though it seems like the same five people end up in my newsfeed all the time. We're so connected, but people today feel more lonely and less known than ever before. In fact, people in America are twice as likely to say that they are lonely than they were 10 years ago. And, and just as a reminder, this is research that was done before COVID. So I can imagine that number is even higher now than it was then. But living in digital Babylon, we can find that we're living in something of a digital bubble, right? A digital bubble. Think about how much of life we can experience, life, how much life we can do without actually interacting with another human being, right? Online banking, self-checkout at the grocery store, email, DoorDash. I mean, they just drop the food right on your doorstep and you don't even have to see somebody. Amazon, they'll practically unpack it and you know, put it where it belongs in your house before you even know that you ordered it. And, um, but you never even have to see a person. And, and don't get me wrong, these things are, are super helpful. And they've, they've been super helpful. But when it's become our normal, everyday experience to go through the day without actually interacting with another human being, it has a disembodying effect on us. It's like our, our existence is disconnected from our physical bodies. I mean, just think about the things that people will say via a text or an email that they'd never say if they were standing there talking to you in person. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of that. I, I know I have, not at this church, of course, but in other places, you know, people have emailed me and said some things that, that they would never have said to me standing in the narthex on the way out of church. But they'll say it in an email or a text message, you know. And this digital bubble then fosters this idea that we can just live a my-sized life, right? My, my, my world is all that exists, and in digital Babylon, when you have this, when you live via this disembodied mind and your body no longer matters and you can be whoever you want to be. The emphasis is on individualization. Life is me first, me focused. You know, we don't even take normal photographs anymore. We take selfies, right? You know, I wouldn't take a picture of you all in the congregation. I get you all in the background, right? But the focus is where? It's on me, it's on me. This makes it even easier than ever to insulate ourselves, to surround ourselves with only those people who think like me and agree with me, only those people who are most like us. And there are some really crazy groups out there that we can get connected with online no matter what your kind of niche niche um, you know, interest is. There's an online community for it. I think I've mentioned before here that there are, there are online groups. If you like to take photographs of carpets in airports, 
There's an online group for that. If you like to spend your time photoshopping pictures where you put human arms onto birds, there's a group out there for you. Whatever your weird interest is, you can find a community for it online. And while it's true that birds of a feather tend to flock together, that's different than holding up in your nest, right? So then we get this idea, even in the church, that we can live as Christians on our own. That our discipleship can be a solo effort. We can be Lone Ranger Christians, right? We can have a private spirituality that's just me and Jesus, and that's all I need. But it's just not true. And while our faith is definitely personal, it was never meant to be private. It was never meant to be lived in isolation. The more we focus on this idea of individualization, the more we become distrusting of other people, of leaders, of authority, of institutions, and that can even include God and the church. Right? There's this, this idea of skepticism toward our leaders as we relate more exclusively just to those who are like us. We buy into the stereotypes and we make it about us and them. Even a lot of the TV shows we watch these days have this snarky, sarcastic, underlying humor that just encourages people to be cynical and guarded and to view people in authority with suspicion. In digital Babylon, we've come to rely so much on technology that it's become the way we mediate our relationships. And it's left us lonely and isolated and skeptical and mistrusting. Or at least that's some of the problems that we're facing today. But I want to take a few minutes to look at the story of Ruth and Naomi. Today we read just the introduction to their story, but the rest of the book of Ruth tells what happened because of the choices that were made in these verses. In fact, you know, Ruth is only four chapters long. You could sit down and read it in 15 or 20 minutes. I'd encourage you to do that today. And you could probably even get it in before the Eagles game when you get home. But Naomi and her family, right? Her husband, her two sons, they move from Bethlehem to Moab because of the famine in that area. Now, if you've spent some time in church or in scripture, you should be thinking, Bethlehem, that, that sounds familiar. There's something happened there, and you're right, you're right. Um, but if you don't know about Moab, Moab is not Israel. It's not part of Israel. It's the land that was inhabited by the descendants of one of Lot's sons. Lot being the nephew of Abraham, who was the patriarch of Israel. 
Now, more recently in the story between these two nations, while the Israelites were on their way to the promised land following the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after their exodus from slavery in Egypt, they had to go through Moab. And the king of Moab hired the prophet Balaam to curse the Israelites. He had seen what they had done to some of the other nations, some of the other tribes. And so he hires Balaam to curse the Israelites. That ends up backfiring. You can read all about that in Deuteronomy around chapter 23. But Deuteronomy 23 says that because of that choice by the king of Moab, Moabites weren't even allowed to enter into the assembly of God's people. So this isn't exactly the best of relationships, right, between Israel and Moab. But Elimelech and Naomi and their sons, they choose to go to Moab in the midst of this famine. And then Naomi's husband dies. Her sons marry Moabite women, which was also against the rules. You weren't allowed to do that as an Israelite. And then they both die. So you've got these three widows who are living together. But in those days, you know, women couldn't own property. They couldn't run a business. They didn't have any legal standing. They were vulnerable. And they were at risk. And so at some point, Naomi hears that the famine isn't so bad in Israel. She decides, all right, I'm going to go back there where at least I have some family that I can get connected to and they can help provide for me and protect me. But she's got these two Moabite women who are depending on her, who have been brought into her family because in those days, The cultural norm was that the the woman would leave her family. She'd become part of her husband's family. And and if her husband died, it was the responsibility of one of his brothers to kind of take her into the household to produce a son uh, for his lineage, to produce an heir for him. And, And he would then provide and protect that woman. So Naomi tells her daughters-in-law that they've got a better chance of remarrying, they've got a better chance of being provided for and taken care of if they go back to their families, if they go and start over with their people. Because in Israel, they'd be nothing but outsiders. So Naomi tells them, go home. They cry together. The girls refuse. They cry some more. Naomi insists. Finally, Orpah decides she's going to go back. She's going to go back to her family. And she says goodbye to Naomi. But Ruth is resolved. She will not leave Naomi. And the rest of the book of Ruth tells the story of their return to Bethlehem. And Ruth's courtship with Boaz, who was a distant relative of Elimelech. And over the course of that story, we see this relationship between Naomi and Ruth deepen and mature and and get stronger. And I get the sense that Naomi becomes more like a mother to Ruth than a mother-in-law. 
That's a special relationship, right? Between a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law to get to that level. But there's a mutuality to their relationship. Ruth helps to provide for Naomi by gathering in the fields, by gleaning from the harvest. Naomi counsels and advises Ruth. She gives her the wisdom of her experience. And this meaningful intergenerational relationship was exactly what they both needed, not just to survive in that world, but to thrive. And I think that's exactly what we need today. If we are going to develop followers of Jesus who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live vibrant lives in the spirit, Meaningful relationships have to occur. Meaningful relationships. They're one of the five practices that form resilient disciples. You see, 85% of those resilient disciples who were uh, surveyed said that they had someone in their life who encourages them to grow spiritually. 85%. That number drops to 50% for those who identified as churchgoers, 31% for nomads, and less than a quarter for prodigals. It's, It's no wonder to me, no wonder to me that people end up leaving the church when there's no one who's willing to invest in their lives. But it's interesting to me that the biggest drop doesn't take place between churchgoers and nomads but between resilient disciples and churchgoers. I think that's a significant reality. But the kind of meaningful relationships that are experienced by resilient disciples, they don't just happen on their own. There are four things required for that kind of meaningful intergenerational relationship to develop. And I want to give you those Things. For those of you taking notes at home, here they are, okay? Number one, if we're going to develop meaningful intergenerational relationships, we've got to know what kind of people we want to spend time around and become like. We've got to know what kind of people we want to become. It's really hard to be, or it's really hard to build meaningful relationships if no one wants to be around you, right? If you're just cranky and and you hide yourself away and no one wants to be around you, it's really hard to build relationships if no one wants to be around you or grow to be like you. In their book, Connected, The Surprising Power of Our Social Networks and How They Shape Our Lives, James Fowler and Nicholas Christakis tell us that we become the average of the five people that we spend the most time with. So they tell us, if your five closest friends gain 10 pounds, chances are you're gonna gain 10 pounds too. If the five people you spend the most time with pick up a habit like running, chances are you're gonna start running too. The people we surround ourselves with matters. It matters. 
And therefore, it also matters what kind of person you are becoming. Because if you're one of those five people for someone else, it matters who you're becoming. If you know who you want to be, it matters who you're becoming. So if we're going to develop these kind of meaningful intergenerational relationships, we've got to know what kind of people we're becoming. Number two, if we're going to develop meaningful intergenerational relationships, it's going to take intentionality to cultivate those relationships. Rarely do we just stumble into the kinds of relationships that form us and shape us and mold us. It usually takes place because someone in the relationship takes the initiative. You don't just end up with a mentor because you happen to bump into somebody in the the supermarket, at least not often. But if someone comes to you and says, hey, I want to mentor you. I want to take time and invest myself in your life. Or if someone comes to you and says, hey, you've lived life a lot longer than I have, and, and you've got some wisdom that I want to gain from, it takes intentionality. There needs to be a desired outcome in that relationship, a purpose that's understood. You see, it takes time, and it takes work to make those relationships happen and to make them a priority in the midst of all the busyness of life. I know there there are some people in the room who are retired at this point. You say, oh, I've got all the time in the world. But there's others of you in, in, in here who are like, I've got to work, I've got kids, we've got soccer practice, we've got music practice, we've got X, Y, Z. Like, how can I even add one more thing into my life? It takes intention. It takes intention. It takes a choice to enter into that kind of relationship, which leads into number three. It's going to take more than just Sunday morning to build these kind of relationships. I've said it before, I'll say it again, worshiping together is good. It's a great thing. It's core to who we are as followers of Jesus. But on its own, Sunday morning isn't going to foster the kind of relationships that are needed to develop this kind of resilient faith. We need other shared experience, other points of connection. We've got to spend the time together building those relationships. So maybe it starts with, you know, coming a little early so you can be part of the coffee time and and talking to some people who maybe are outside of your normal circles, people you already know. Maybe it's making it a priority to come to the next event we have at the church, the next lunch or dinner, but maybe not the church conference meeting as much as those are important. You know, it's not exactly the, the fellowship building kind of, uh, of event that we're talking about. But, but it takes more than just showing up to worship on Sunday morning if we're going to create the kind of relationships that will form this kind of, of resilient faith. Number four, meaningful relationships are going to require vulnerability on both sides. It's not just about one person in the relationship lecturing the other person. It's not just about one person in the, in the relationship p- 
patronizing the other person and and listening to all their stories and sitting there and smiling and nodding. There's got to be vulnerability. You've got to open yourself up and be honest with one another and realize you both have something to learn and you both have something to offer. Developing meaningful intergenerational relationships requires vulnerability on both sides. One of the questions that we as humans unconsciously ask, and we tend to bring it first and foremost to our mothers, is the question, am I worth it? Am I worth it? Am I worth we ask our our, our mothers primarily, am I worth all the sleepless nights, the hours of worry? Am I worth the inconveniences that come with needing to get picked up and dropped off and taken here and taken there? Am I worth the stretch marks, right? These are all questions we ask, maybe not in those words, but we ask, am I worth it? It's really just another way of asking, am I loved? Am I loved? Some of us got that answered really well by our moms. Some of us may not have gotten it answered so well. But we all need that question answered by people in our lives other than our moms. No matter how good of a job they did, we need that question answered by other people. We need those kinds of mentors in our lives, people who can teach us how to have rich, meaningful, face-to-face relationships, right? Because you're not gonna learn how to do it on YouTube or Facebook or TikTok. And if you ask Siri or Alexa, they don't have a clue about real relationships. We need those people in our lives who can help us translate faithfulness into the context of life that we're living with. And I get it. Listen, the the things that kids and young adults and even adults my age are going through these days don't necessarily look the same as the things you went through when you were in those stages of life, but it doesn't mean that you don't have wisdom to offer. It doesn't mean that, that your choice of faithfulness in the midst of your context can't be translated into the context we're living in today. We need these kinds of meaningful intergenerational relationships. And Ruth and Naomi, they forged this kind of meaningful intergenerational relationship. And the result wasn't just that Ruth got a new husband, although she did. But the result we find at the end of the book of Ruth in chapter four, beginning in verse 13. And I want to read that section for you this morning. Ruth four, verse 13 says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life, sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. 
Then Naomi took the child in her arms and she cared for him. The women living said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That's King David, by the way. Because of the relationship that was forged between Ruth and Naomi, Ruth went from being an outsider to being the great, 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 great grandmother a few more greats in there, of Jesus, right? You don't get to be any more of an insider than that. And friends, we don't know the impact that our choice to invest in another person's life will make down the line or in the future. So whose spiritual lineage are you pouring yourself into? to forge the kind of meaningful intergenerational relationships that shape resilient disciples, we've got to answer some key questions. But not only answer them, we've got to own our answers. Because if we don't own our answers, we're not going to act on them. So First Methodist, who are you becoming? And who do you want to become? Are you willing to invest the time and intention that's needed to create this kind of meaningful intergenerational relationship? And will you choose to be vulnerable in order to create space for God to work in the midst of those relationships? Those are the questions that are before us today. Are we going to pour our lives into the life of another for the sake of what God wants to do in the world? The God who poured himself out so that he could be poured into us.